0: We're going to uh, pray for our time together now. And first of all, I'm going to read part of our main Bible reading. We've got three chapters today. So we're going to read uh, the first chapter, Genesis 34, if you want to follow. And it's there in um, page 28 of the Church Bibles. So I'm going to read Genesis chapter 34, and then our leaders in prayer for our time Together says this. Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dina, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dina, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to me to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to his father's father and to her brothers, Let me find favour in your eyes. Whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask of me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem, and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dina. They said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, Then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honoured of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gates of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell on the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they, were, uh, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dina out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me to make me stink to the inhabitants of this land, of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister? Like a prostitute. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit's work of making us more holy. That in view that God's people should be holy as He is holy. We thank you how the call to holiness is linked to the work of your Spirit, and that the growth of holiness is one that is keeping in step with the Spirit. We thank you, therefore, for how extensive the Spirit's work for us is. That the Holy Spirit doesn't just reveal Christ to us, that the Holy Spirit doesn't just enable us to accept Christ as Lord by regeneration, but that the Holy Spirit also conforms us to the likeness of Christ. We marvel too at the extent of the holiness that he brings, how complete the transformation is that you have provided for us that includes our mind, our heart, and our body. We thank you that the scope of the salvation that comes to us in Christ meets the needs of our total depravity, that the Holy Spirit's work in making us holy is truly comprehensive and since we are to be holy as you are holy we acknowledge that our holiness therefore depends on the knowledge of your holiness and who you are and so we pray on for one another that as we study the book of beginnings the book of Genesis that we would read it and reread it so much so that our minds would be absorbed would absorb its categories and values, that we would steep ourselves in its tone and temper, and that we would learn its overall message and the God of whom it speaks. Amen. We're going to have our main Bible reading now, which is, or uh, the rest of it, Genesis chapter 35 and 36. Again, roundabout about page 28
1: in the Church Bibles. I'm reading from the ESV. And it says this, 35 verse 1.
0: God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise, and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God, who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears, Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Baka. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, the pillar of stone. He poured out the drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labour, and she had hard labour. And when her labour was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, she was dying. She called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eda. While Israel lived in that land, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve: the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn; Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Beha, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali; and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the day of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old
1: and full of days. And his son Esau and Jacob buried him. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom.
0: Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Adah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholib Baham, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basimah, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth, and Adah bore to Esau, Ediphaz, Basimah, or Reul, and Bamah, or Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau. Reul, the son of Basimah, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Timan. Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shama, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau Jesh, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs Temam, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's son. The chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basimah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ahol, Aholibama, Esau's wife. The chiefs, Jewish, Jalam and Korah, these are the chiefs born of Aholibama, the daughter of Anna, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horites, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Heman, and Lotan's sister were Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alban, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Aiah, e- and Anna. He is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Anna, Dishon and Aholibama, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ethran, Cheran. These are the sons of Iza: Bilhan, Zavan, and Akan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief, in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Eden, before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom; the name of his city being din Bella Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Bosra, reigned in his place. Jobab died. Hashem of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Abith. Hadad died, and Samla of Masrekah reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shol of Rehoboth of the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shol died, and baal Hannah, the son of Akbor reigned in his place. Balhamar, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being uh, Peu. His wife's name was Mehatabel, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mezahab. These are names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places, by their names the chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jetha, Aholibama, Ella, Pinon, Kinas, Timan. Mibzar, Magdiel, and Aram. Hiram. These are the chiefs of Edom. That is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling
2: places in the land of their possession. To keep that
0: text open, we're going to be looking at that together over the course of the next few minutes. Just to say there's an outline of this morning's message in your service sheets, so do make use of that if you want to. Um, and at the end, there will be an opportunity for any questions or comments, um, either about the text or uh, what's been said for clarity. Mention that now, so you can bear that in mind.
2: Before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help.
1: Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is truthful, good, and sovereign.
0: And we pray, please, you'd help us now uh, in response to your word to listen to it, to trust it, and to obey it, and therefore vindicate uh, who you are as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) The God Desire is a new book that has recently been published by David Baddiel, who's probably best known for his work as a comedian. And the argument of his book is really quite straightforward. Baddiel argues that it is the very
1: intensity of the human desire for God to exist that proves his non-existence. Anything so deeply wished for, we will make real. He captures his premise in the following quote:
0: "A close friend once said to me, 'But you don't want... But sorry, a close friend once said to me, 'But don't you want to believe in God?'" I said,
1: "Yes, desperately. That's why I know he doesn't exist." Now, Bedil is a self-confessed atheist but he says he's
0: a reluctant one. He has no belief in God, but he wants to believe in God. And it's precisely that desire that puts him off. For he thinks that when
1: we really want something, we just conjure it into being.
0: Now, one of the interesting things about the book is how he distances himself from what he calls the uh, machismo or sort of uh, um, machoism of much atheism. He writes of how atheists like Dawkins scorns the afterlife and the need for such comfort. Bedile, on the other hand, speaks of how it is unhuman to pretend we don't need comfort. He himself confesses, who would not love a superhero dad who chases off death? He speaks of how dismissing religion shows a lack of intellectual curiosity,
1: and it's impossible to understand humanity without religion. For him, it would seem that the gods that people make up are a
0: window into understanding their humanity.
1: Rather than be wound up by a believer, he actually finds them really interesting. Now, whilst Badil is less aggressive than the atheist who wants to trash religion,
0: has he actually made any progress in thinking things through?
1: Does what he's got to say put him in a superior position to, say, Dawkins. Has Badil made a step in the right direction? That ought to be welcomed. Well, it is in Genesis chapter 34 that we are confronted with the appalling rape of Dinah.
0: Dina was introduced to us back in Genesis chapter 30 as the daughter of Jacob. So Genesis 30, uh, verse 19. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment, and now my husband will honour me, because I have borne him six sons. So he called his name Zebulun.
1: Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dina. Now, we're told here
0: some of the details that prepare us for the events that
1: were to unfold. For who is Dina's mother? Leah, not Rachel. Now, if you remember, Jacob was tricked into marrying Leah. But it was Rachel whom he loved. And it's this background that helps us to understand Jacob's response
0: back in Genesis 34, verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the
1: field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Now, those silence might be
0: right in some circumstances. The observation of the narrator here reflects badly on Jacob. He doesn't seem to care about his daughter's honour. Jacob's lack of love for
1: Leah seems to have spilled over to his daughter, Dina. And it will not be Jacob who was to take action about her rape. It was her
0: brothers who were incensed by it. And of the
1: sons of Jacob, two stand out Simeon and Levi. And their mother was Leah. It was Simeon and Levi, two of the six sons
0: of Leah, who led the attack on the Shechemites. It fell to Dina's brothers to come to the rescue. Now, it's interesting that, again, in in this chapter of Genesis, no theological comment is made at all. The narrator leaves the reader to reflect on its significance. But the narrator does provide a clue in how he ends his account. Let's pick it up from verse 30 of chapter 34. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said,
1: Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? When Jacob challenges
0: Simeon and Levi for their actions, they said, Verse
1: 31, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And the reader is left thinking, they have a point. Jacob's concern was that he had no concern, but that now he was concerned that he
0: may now suffer revenge at the hands of the Canaanites, like his father and grandfather before him. His fear relates to saving his own
1: life. Whereas Simeon and Levi, their concern related to their sister. They acted to avenge her
0: rape and put an end to the intermarrying with the Canaanites of the land. And by now, while the reader is well aware that if the offspring of Jacob are to inherit the land,
1: they must not intermarry among those destined to disinherit the land.
0: Genesis 34 ended with Jacob paralyzed. His sons have massacred the Shechemites, and Jacob now fears the prospect of the vengeance the Canaanites might try to wreak. it's at that point that uh, that God speaks to Jacob and God tells him to go to Bethel.
1: Well, what is the significance of going to Bethel? Well, mention of Bethel ought to take us back to Genesis chapter 28. Jacob, having fled to save his
0: life from his brother Esau, had been met by God. And God said to him, In Genesis 28, verse 13. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you
1: until I have done, what I promised you. It was here that Jacob received the promise. The promise that God would be with him and that he would take him back to the land. And it was at that point that,
0: back in 28 verse 19, that Jacob called that place Bethel. The significance of Bethel for Jacob is that is where the promise of God given and you can see the parallel in circumstances for now jacob's not fleeing
1: from esau but the canaanites and so he is to go again to bethel the significance of bethel for jacob is that was where the promise was given now if you'd forgotten all that you needn't worry because the narrator
0: is at pains to remind us of it. It's as if the narrator acknowledges that it's not
1: only Jacob who has a short memory, but quite possibly the reader also. Well how does what God says how does what God says this time
0: to Jacob differ from what he said previously? Let's pick it up, Genesis thirty five verse ten. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your
1: own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. At one level the promise is the same.
0: The promise to make Jacob into a great nation and give him his offspring, a land. But if you've been following this sermon series in Genesis, you might be thinking, how many times have we heard this now?
1: And it's not that we keep reading the same bit of Genesis over and over again, but rather that when God gives the promise, it remains unchanged. The thing that keeps changing
0: is Jacob. His different circumstances cause various degrees of fear and anxiety. And each time God takes him back to the unchanging promise of God to stabilise and strengthen him.
1: Now at some point we need to engage with the question who is God that he can make a promise? We previously engaged with a similar question. Who is God that he
0: can give the land? For no doubt the Canaanites would say, it's already taken. Thank you very much. It belongs to us. Now in that case, we recalled that back in Genesis chapter 1, the basic descriptor of God is creator. He is the one who made everything. And since he is the creator of everything, he is the owner everything. In particular, he is the owner of all of the
1: lands of the earth, and he is able to give them to whom he pleases. The idea of God giving a land is tied up to him being the creator. The land is his to give. Well, what about the, prom- what about the question, who is God that he can make a promise. Well, for a promise to have value, there needs to be fulfilment.
0: If a promise is not kept, it has no value. That is to say that God's promise relates to God's truthfulness. And this again, would you believe, takes us back to Genesis chapter 1 and the basic descriptor of God as creator For he is the
1: creator who spoke his creation into being. When he said, Let there be light, there was light.
0: When he said, Let the waters, let the rivers teem with living creatures,
1: it was so. God spoke and it happened. Now, God's truthfulness also ought to take us back to
0: Genesis chapter 3. For the serpent's temptation started with the indication
1: to Eve that the day that you eat of the fruit, you will not surely die. But who is it that said that you will surely die? God. Central to humanity's original sin is the idea that we have brought God's truthfulness into question. Fulfillment of God's promise is therefore to be seen as vindicating God and his truthfulness. It is that important. Well, Genesis chapter 36 is the genealogy of Esau, and
0: it's full of theological significance. It begins with those words. These are the generations of Esau, 36,
1: verse 1.
0: Now, this phrase, these are the generations of, is a repeated phrase in the book of Genesis. And it will next occur in chapter 37, verse 2, where we read, these are the generations of Jacob, and here lies the significance.
1: The custom in Genesis is to give the non-elect line before the elect line. So just flick back for me to Genesis uh, 25. If you recall, Abraham has two sons,
0: Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael's mother was Sarah's servant, Hagar. And although Abraham's eldest son, and despite Abraham's plea that he would be the heir, God said no, and that Abraham's heir would come from Sarah and be called Isaac. So Isaac then, and not Ishmael, would be Abraham's heir. And as was the custom, the genealogy of Ishmael is given before the genealogy of Isaac. So here we go, Genesis 25, if you're there. Verse 12, these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. And then only after that, Genesis 25, verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. This sequence of genealogy
1: confirms that
0: the promise lay with Isaac and not with Ishmael. And so, if we jump back to Genesis 36 and consider that alongside Genesis 37, that now confirms to the reader
1: that the promise lay with Jacob and not Esau. Or to put it another way, Esau really didn't inherit the promise because he was listed first.
0: Now this is fascinating because it raises the question, who of Jacob's sons?
1: will inherit the promise. Now, at this point, we've learned that we can affirm two things. One, we can't just assume it's going to be the eldest. Two, it is God's prerogative to choose.
0: Now, although the reader's not yet been made aware of it explicitly, for that we'll have to wait till Genesis chapter 49, a number of things have happened
1: that have somewhat invalidated certain sons in qualifying. Reuben, the eldest son, slept with his father's concubine. Chapter
0: 35,
1: verse 22.
0: Now we're told that Israel heard about it, but we're left
1: in suspense as to what the consequences will be. Next in line are Simeon and Levi.
0: But they, in chapter 34:30, are brought into question because of a terrible revenge that brought about, they brought about, which was clearly disproportionate. Now, as I said, the reader does not become aware of this until the various blessings are pronounced in Genesis 49. But if Reuben, Simeon, and Levi are disqualified, who is next in line? He will be the one to watch.
1: We began by considering the premise of David Bedell's new book, The God Desire, and
0: that he claimed that it's the very intensity of the human desire for God to exist that proves his non-existence. And whilst in an atheistic position, we asked if it was an improvement from Dawkins' atheism. Dawkins' atheism tends to rubbish religion,
1: but atheism, is less wound up by religion and actually finds it quite interesting because it tells us what it means to be human. I wonder what you think. One observation that I had was really a demonstration of the power of a Christian framework.
0: Because it seems that what Baddiel is describing is what in
1: a Christian framework we call idolatry. According to the Bible, idolatry is wrong thinking about God. It is an imagining of him as we would like him to be. And since Genesis 3,
0: fallen humanity is prone to idolatry, to this activity of making up God in one way or another. In other words, it seems to me that Bedil has observed this category of idolatry although he doesn't see it as that. And he finds it
1: interesting because the gods that we make up do tell us something about humanity. Fallen humanity. But in the Christian framework, idolatry isn't the only option
0: because idolatry presupposes that there is a true version of God.
1: If it's possible to misrepresent him, then there needs to be a true representation of God. You need the reality from which there can be a distortion.
0: And that is, of course, where the book of Genesis began, which introduced God to us as the uncreated creator. It's a description of which the Bible never moves on from, but only adds to as the story of the Bible unfolds that the
1: storyline of the Bible is the stage on which God reveals himself to us. In which case, Bedeel's version of atheism is hardly a development. For whilst Dawkins may rubbish religion,
0: Deal's atheism well, does nothing to tackle idolatry, but rather finds it all really interesting. In that way,
1: his atheism leaves people in their idolatry and even encourages it. I mention all this for a few reasons, really. I recently heard an interview that he gave on the
0: radio. Um, I know uh, one of you also heard that. And I've since um, read his book. And it may be that this does the rounds of it. We might come across others who hear something of it so we can be alert to that, so if it comes up, we can be prepared and have something helpful to say. I think it also provides a nice opportunity to demonstrate to you the power of a Christian framework. Rather than be worried or bamboozled by what he says, he isn't saying anything that we haven't already thought about. He's just observed the biblical category of idolatry from a secular point of view. Idolatry is something that Christians have thought Extensively about, and we're able to put idolatry into a larger framework where idolatry
1: is seen over and against God as He really is. And finally, when we consider error, it can sharpen our understanding of truth. As Christians, we are not pursuing our desires, we're getting to know
0: God as He's revealed Himself and then conforming our
1: desires to his. That's the ongoing work of repentance, of turning from our views of God to God as
0: he really is. That's the activity of the Christian. And it's as we know God as he really is, that we're then in a position
1: to share a zeal for his name and the holiness for which he demands.
2: Let me pray, and then I'll open up to any comments or questions you have.
1: Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who makes a
0: promise. And we thank you for the promise to restore your creation. And we thank you for the confidence that we can have in this promise. Because you are the God who is truthful. As the uncreated creator, you're in a position to fulfil your promise.
1: And therefore that we can put our confidence in that. In Jesus' name, Amen. I mentioned before, I have a time for any questions or comments. Now is that opportunity. So...
0: I know what you're going to ask. Go on.
1: Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I just like, Nathan, what are you going to ask? Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Nathan, just for the recording. So, we saw
0: before when it was when um,
1: Jacob was wanting to leave Laban and uh, Rachel. Where's the verse for that? Here we go, uh, chapter 31,
0: uh, verse 34 that Rachel had taken the household gods. And put them in the camel saddle and sat on them. Yeah, and we were just talking about actually, yeah, that that invites a, a comparison between household gods that you can sit on versus the Lord, who sort of is the uncreated creator. And then you spotted in chapter 35 that when God says, Go to Bethel. Verse 2, Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. And then let us arise and go to Bethel, so that I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Yes, it's a nice observation about what do we understand by purification as he prepares to leave
1: to meet with Bethel. Is it's a um, putting away foreign gods as they prepare to go and meet with God at Bethel um,
0: I mean it's funny it's quite incidental to the sort of the, the narrative, but I mean it is quite helpful just in the wider picture where we're thinking about what is the
2: um, what repentance is what we're what we're um
1: Christians are wanting to do what the people of God are called to do is,
0: is to turn from false views of God, misrepresentations of God to
1: the true and living God. So that's rejecting misrepresentations of God, the God as he really is.
0: But that's where I think the deal is interesting because by only looking at idolatry, all he is able to say is, oh, I just observed that humans
1: make up gods. And that's interesting because the gods we make up reflect our desires. But that needs to be, whilst there's some truth in that, actually this puts it
0: in a bigger context of, yeah, there are, there are foreign gods, there are household gods, there are gods that we fashion and make up. But that's over and against the true and living God. And actually I mean, it's interesting. One of the things, I think, mean, the thing that God is most angered by is idolatry, because actually, it's uh, it's misrepresenting misrepresenting God, just like we don't
1: want to be misrepresented. It's not surprised that God is not prepared to be misrepresented.
2: So, yeah, thank you. anybody else? It's easy.
1: Yes, um, thanks Susie. So, uh, chapter 36
0: is the genealogy of Esau. happy with this idea of that comes, that's the non-let line, comes the let line. But that said, there's still quite a lot in chapter 36, a lot of names. What are we supposed to do with them? Um, so, one thing that we... Um,
1: if you just flick back to... Um, chapter 25. And this was a kind of a similar
0: comment that we made about Ishmael as well. So 25:23, 23, um, this was a word given to Jacob and Esau's mother before they were born. And the Lord said to Rebecca. Two nation, two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So it's interesting there that there are two nations in the womb. Um, I think it was a similar
1: uh, expectation that Ishmael was promised that he would be a great nation, even though he wasn't the Uh, the
0: line of the promise and so i think another um, observation i didn't put it in because i just thought it was enough what i'd said but i think another conclusion that we can make from genesis 36 is actually that word there is a fulfillment of that that esau didn't just peter out he had actually become a nation um not the chosen nation but nevertheless a nation so, you, know, you could make a sort of a subsidiary point of, well, if, if Esau has become a nation, then again, you lean into the promise because actually when God speaks a promise, it is, we see fulfillment of it and therefore that um, continues to put the truthfulness of God in our face in terms of we're thinking actually, if he said that of Esau, that's come true. What else did he say? And then we read on um, with uh, the generations of Jacob. So, but in that sense, that's still a kind of a big picture thing. That's not getting into the detail of a name. That's just saying Esau became something, and that is fulfillment of promise. Um, I think in terms of, well, it'd be interesting when we do Obadiah in growth groups. Because Obadiah is a prophecy that's directed, if I'm right, again, or uh, towards um, Edom um, and this nation. So this isn't the end of this nation in terms of how it features in the Bible. And then may be that we go back and then we think, a little bit like, you know, with have um, Dina. When she was introduced, um, it just said, and uh, Leah had a daughter, Dina, you just like, I care. I'm more familiar with her sons because they become the 12 tribes of Israel at the time it seemed incidental but then when you get to chapter 34 it's actually quite important that we know that Dina was related to Leah because that explains Jacob's reaction to the news and and Simeon and Levi's involvement so in many ways we've got I, I would start with like the bigger Things like this is not the alert line, but it is a nation, and that's fulfilment. But then we've got thirty-six to come back to. If later there are characters, and we just say, "Oh, what's the signif- Who are they?" and this identifies them, and
1: therefore helps us to see what's going on. Is that cool? Good. Time for one more. I can, oh. Is anybody else? No. Uh um, Nathan. Yes, I'm, I'm, I, I, can, I, can I guess what you know, sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, oh. oh yeah, this is the one. I knew you were gonna ask for that.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes. So I don't, you mentioned that last week. I haven't actually got that
0: much to say other than, so for the recording, in Genesis 32, go
1: on, where is it he's renamed? Um, verse 20, 28. It's a verse
0: 28. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for he's driven with God and with men and have prevailed." And then in our text, 35, God appears and says, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. So the commentator says very little. He just says, actually, because in in chapter 35, the reason why the, the name is given is not explained like it is in chapter 32 because of him striving with God because his name means um well, there's a couple of options
2: aren't there it's either um, where was it again um
0: god fights or he fights with God. Sort of, Basically, it's related to that encounter. So the fact that that isn't mentioned again in chapter 35, they conclude, which just means the narrator assumes that we already know that, that that's already happened. So the fact that it's not explained, actually, um, the conclusion is that's because we already know about, we already know the reason why he's been renamed, because of what happened, what happened earlier. Um, My own thought would also just be, in a slightly bigger picture, would be, so in that sense I think he's already been renamed, but he's, he's reminded, or he's been renamed as a kind of a confirmationary, I think that's what's going on. But I think that kind of fits with the chapter, because it's all, chapter 35 is quite repetitious
1: in terms of he goes back to Bethel, God says, gives a promise, again, in very similar
0: terms. And I think this goes back to the fact that when Jacob was fleeing from Esau, he has this encounter with God where God assures him that he is with him and he won't perish, but he will be given the land. And then he's in a similar situation where he's kind of on the run from the Canaanites because of what's happened with Dina. And basically, he's got nothing new to say you called Israel, I called you Israel before I made these promises, I'm saying the promises again, this is, I'm not changing, and in your fear and anxiety this is the, these are the stabilising truths of I am your God and I'm going to fight for you and give you what I promised, so if anything it feels like I think it maybe reflects more on the, this whole idea of we're slow to quick to forget so if anything this was like do. you remember? You're not Jacob, you're Israel, and that ought to strengthen him. Cool. There we go, you've got the question in. Okay, let's leave it there uh, for the moment.
1: Uh, we're going to sing again. Um, from heaven you came. Padil's book ends on an interesting note.
0: One, it shares a uh, with another book that I fairly recently uh, read called Whatever Happened to Tradition by a guy called Tim Stanley. And it's one of little more than confessed hopelessness. Badil explores the alternative of making up gods according to our desires. He briefly explores the concept of love, but as quickly dismisses it because he concedes it can be
1: misused. And so he writes this. Have a listen. So I am running out of ideas. I apologise. I wish I had more. I guess laughter.
0: That's about it. We do have one thing that actually does separate us from the animals. And it's the ability to be funny. Although I've seen footage of chimps apparently laughing themselves at poo-throwing, so I could be wrong there also. Which means we can laugh. We can laugh at our own futility, at nothingness, at the knowledge that the living are just the dead on holiday. I mean that phrase itself is funny. It sends bad shivers down my increasingly decrepit spine.
1: But it is also at some level funny. It's all I've got. Sleep well. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised by this, but I was kind of expecting more.
0: It's not that I was expecting a real alternative to Christianity, but for the author to concede just how paltry his alternative is seems to portray an utter lack of confidence in it.
1: All he has got and all that he is offering is a bit of laughter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God
0: that makes a promise. We thank you for the value of this promise, because it's related to your truthfulness, a truthfulness that you revealed to us at creation. We thank you that your promise is nothing less than the fulfilment of your creation purpose. We thank you that your promise has already been fulfilled in the coming of your Son, that through him your kingdom has already been established. And as we wait for his return, we do so with great confidence, knowing that the God who is truthful is the God who keeps his promise. A promise that will one day be seen in a new heaven and a new earth, where we will dwell with you and you will be our God and we will be your people.
2: Amen. We're going to sing our final song.